the reading of God's word this morning. Luke chapter 11, verses 11 to 13. Really do want to encourage you, during the midst of the sermon and the teaching, listen to the babies, listen to their songs, listen to their rest, listen to them being held by their parents. It's how our Father desires to speak to us today as his children. And so the words of the Holy Spirit through the scriptures, the voice of Jesus to each of us this morning. Which of you fathers, if your son asks for a fish, will give him a snake instead? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? If you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? This is the word of the Lord. You guys can grab your seats. Holy Spirit, come. In the coming weeks, as we, as a community, Jesus, bow our knees before you, more than ever, we open our hearts to you. We cast off all care, casting it upon you. I am continually being reminded to repent of my adulthood that I've got everything under control, I fit everything into my systems. When you, my father, are waiting for me to hold your hand and walk into this playground called creation. And so I pray for us this morning as a church that we would embrace your leader, your leadership of us, your guiding of us. And we can't give to the world what we haven't been given, and we can't lead our friends and coworkers and family and neighbors where we haven't been led ourselves. So open our postures, open our hearts and minds to receive from you and to be led by you to still waters, to green pastures. Father in heaven, holy is your name. Your will be done. Your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. In Jesus' name, all God's people said, amen. Well, for those of you that have been along for the ride and for those of you that are here visiting this morning and watching babies be dedicated, we are spending the entire fall until December revisiting and reestablishing our three core values as a church community. Simplicity, spirit, and stillness. Simplicity, stillness, and spirit in that order. I really do want to encourage you, if you're trying to track along with who we are and what we're doing here, I really encourage you to go back and listen to the three prior sessions that began this value series three Sundays ago, because they do set up the background, and they cover these first two values of simplicity and stillness in a 100,000-foot style. Today, we're beginning an eight-week deep dive into our third value, spirit, the Holy Spirit himself. Just to get the lay of the land, that's all this morning is. This morning is not going to be a lot of heavy teaching. This morning is just an introduction to kind of orient ourselves where we are. And I really want to talk with us about how our three values integrate one with another. How simplicity leads to stillness. How stillness and simplicity open up an avenue for the Holy Spirit to walk down and meet us deep in our hearts. Here's our tagline. God the Holy Spirit indwells and animates his church by his very presence. Simplicity makes room for the spirit to fill us. Stillness shapes our souls through the spirit's counsel. Through these practices, the spirit moves his community to be a prophetic and pastoral presence in the world. 
Now, the lay of the land, how these values orient one unto another. Our first two values, simplicity and stillness, we draw those from a deep well in Christian history, going all the way back to Jesus himself. The contemplatives. How many of you have ever heard of the contemplative traditions in Christianity, just by a raise of hands? A few of us? Good. It's not such a common tradition that we're acquainted with as modern Western Protestant evangelicals. That's kind of our stream of Christianity. The contemplatives were a community of Christians in the early 3rd, 4th century Roman Empire that intentionally fled the power and success structures of their society to pursue Jesus. They left the cities and they formed these monastic communities out in the deserts of Egypt. Their earliest writings emerge around that same time, and for centuries now, they have been training generations of Christians in particular practices to slow the soul down, to become aware, to consider, to contemplate creation, God, each other. This branch of the Christian family tree, the contemplatives, it's full of monks and mystics, and they live these radically countercultural lives. And in their countercultural living, they learn to see God everywhere, to see God in all things, to see God at all times. And the hallmarks of the contemplative traditions were simplicity and stillness, our first two values. Our third value is drawn from God himself, God the Holy Spirit. God the Holy Spirit is the third person of the Trinity, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. And he is everywhere in the scriptures. We value the Spirit of God within our community because it is impossible to be a Christian without the Holy Spirit. We emphasize the Holy Spirit's presence, his indwelling of us, his empowering of the church as one of our core values because without him, we can do nothing. Now, like the contemplative traditions who are marked by simplicity and stillness, there is a whole branch of Jesus's family tree that emphasizes the Spirit's presence. There were the first centuries first century disciples in the book of Acts, upon whom literal tongues of fire came. And from that moment, every tribe, tongue, and nation began to hear the gospel from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria to the uttermost parts of the earth. This community of Christians empowered by the Holy Spirit came to be called the Charismatics, the Charismatics. The Charismatics longed for and prayed for, and they expected God the Holy Spirit to be with them in power. Now, the name Charismatic itself is drawn from Paul's language in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, where Paul talks about the Charismata, the Charismata, or the manifestations and the gifts of the Holy Spirit. Two weeks from now, we're going to dive into 1 Corinthians chapter 12 through 14, and we're going to talk about charismata and tongues and the gift of prophecy and the gift of administration and all the stuff that God manifests by his presence in the midst of his people. The hallmark of the charismatic traditions has always been intensive prayer. The charismatics have always had this openness and this emphasis on the supernatural work of God, and they've always been marked by an unwavering belief that God the Holy Spirit comes and dwells with his people tangibly. Simplicity, stillness, spirit. Neighbors is a contemplative, charismatic people. We are a contemplative, charismatic people. Our values reflect and combine the emphasis of both of these historical and present traditions of the Christian family. 
And we are convinced that the, the key to becoming a fully mature Christian, it requires the values and the practices and the traditions of a broader scope of Christianity. And so at Neighbors, we are trying to revitalize lost practices from the contemplatives that, as I said, these practices slow us down. Things like Sabbath, silence, solitude, stuff that most of us freak out when we think about. <laughs> stuff that simplifies our lives. Stuff that, that brings about this stillness of soul that clears the clutter. But with the charismatic traditions, we are crying out in earnest for God the Holy Spirit to literally pour out upon us with fresh power for works of renewal. Like I said, sign up for that one-hour slot. That one-hour slot for our prayer room, October 22nd, that is a time for us for one hour out of our day to plead for God's presence to come upon us, to come upon our city, to flood this world again. Mature Christianity, we live from both places, contemplative and charismatic. So track with me here. As contemplatives, we pray for the sick and suffering. We lay hands on them, and we rest in the truth that even in terrible suffering, God is always and only working good. That's a contemplative perspective. As charismatics, we lay hands on the sick and suffering, and we pray for complete healing and deliverance in the moment because we believe that God wants to bring that good in tangible ways. As contemplatives... We learn to embrace those dry desert seasons as places of gifting and deep transformation. As charismatics, we pray for rivers of living waters to flood out of our innermost being, just washing through the barrenness. Are you seeing the, the contrast here, the interweaving of these two traditions, contemplative, charismatic? And the balance is necessary because, and this is really key for us this morning, if neighbors is your home, hear this clearly. We are not contemplative and we are not charismatic as our primary identity marker. We are apprentices of the Christ. We are Christians. Christian was a diminutive term in the book of Acts. It literally meant little Christs. Did you guys know that? Every time you call yourself a Christian, you're saying, I'm a little Jesus. <laughs> and so we are practicing all of Jesus's ways, everything that Jesus did, so that we can be with him, so that we can become like him, so that we can do what he did. Lay of the land, orientation this morning. I want to share why we're only spending, why did we only spend two weeks on simplicity and stillness, and why are we spending eight weeks on the Spirit? It's important that you understand this. Number one, why spend so much time on the Spirit and so little time, seemingly, on simplicity and on stillness? Number one, our church over the last couple of years, since we planted three years ago, coming up, actually, this weekend almost, practically. Wow, today would be almost like our third birthday. Happy birthday, Neighbors Church. Um, yeah, that's great. That's awesome. Over the last couple of years since we planted, this church has been soaking in the first two values of simplicity and stillness. Why? Because we were forced to, circumstantially. I'm not kidding. Through COVID and quarantine and the political cycles and the racial upheavals and pain and everything else that the last three years have thrown at us as a church plant, literally all we could do as a community, a fledgling, fragile community, was just kind of watch the world go into chaos with faith. All we could do was just like, well, we have no control over this. Let's rest. Let's be still. When we really started freaking out, we'd go back to value number one. Let's keep this simple. Let's not overcomplicate this. It's, it's a mess out there right now. And so let's just wait on God. 
in talking as a team over these last couple years and just reflecting, what we realized is that forced circumstantially to live simply and to be still, it decluttered us as a church community. It slowed us down to actually listen. And so we became present to each other and present to our God to where now we can host the presence of God as a family. And we believe that God is moving us into a new season here on our third birthday where our third value of his power and his movement is going to become a primary marker of the life of this church. And so for the next eight weeks, we're going to be teaching and praying intensively so as not to miss what the Father has prepared for us over these past few years through simplicity and through stillness. Number two, we're spending seven weeks or eight weeks on the Spirit because, as I've already said, we are utterly theologically, emotionally, psychologically, relationally, sociologically convinced that apart from God moving and doing by his presence and power, we are hopeless. Without the Holy Spirit, we are wasting our time in here on a Sunday morning. The prophet Zechariah, he encouraged a community of Jews that were building the second temple in ancient Israel, saying that they would bring about the completion of the work, their mission, their calling by, not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord Almighty. So lights and fog machines and stages beautiful, important for making disciples. Human strategies, marketing tactics, business models, I'm not, I think they're extremely beneficial in building churches, in organizing, in helping make disciples. But we are convinced that they are utterly powerless to do the work of soul transformation and social upheaval, that when the Spirit comes, everything just gets wrecked. Everything gets wrecked. And so, as a simple people, being still, waiting on God, we want to rely completely on His power to build us to build our church. We want to rely on his presence to heal us and to transform us. Now, a challenge for all of us. In so much of our daily existence, I'm speaking to myself here. In so much of my daily existence, as a pastor who's paid to study the Bible and pray, in so much of my daily existence, God is ignored. He's an afterthought, if a thought at all. And I would propose that the decline of the church in the West is in part due to this ignorance of God's presence. The religious exodus of our day is driven by a negligence of God's actual presence and power. And the resurgence of the church across the globe in underground churches like China, in Iran, where today women in head coverings, well, they're burning their head coverings now in Iran, but they're going out to declare the gospel at risk to their lives. And you want to know what they're marked by? A vital sense of the presence of God daily. The great A.W. Tozer, he was a pastor in Chicago in the 60s. I think he was a prophetic voice for our moment. He wrote 60 years ago this. If the Holy Spirit was withdrawn from the church today, or change that, if the Holy Spirit was withdrawn from your life today, 95% of what we do would go on and no one would know the difference. If the Holy Spirit had been withdrawn from the New Testament church, 95% of what they did would stop and everybody would know the difference. How much of what we do in our daily lives goes on without the Holy Spirit? 
For the earliest Christians, our brothers and sisters, there was no life and doing apart from the Holy Spirit. And Jesus himself said, I do nothing but what I see the Father doing. I say nothing but what I hear the Father saying. And he did that as a human, empowered, independence on the daily presence of the Holy Spirit. And so if you as a Christian, this is to the Christians in the room, if you're like me and you've just grown weary of repeating the same sin and falling into the same sin patterns, then the next seven weeks are an invitation for all of us to say yes to a whole new way of being human in the direct presence of God's power. And if you're like me, and you've become desperate for this thing that we're doing here on Sunday mornings to actually mean something, you've become just absolutely pleadingly desperate for the church to make some real change in our city, to have some real impact, then for the next seven to eight weeks, we're going to be praying and learning how the Holy Spirit does that. Number three, number three. The third reason that we need to spend eight weeks on this third value is because as a church plant, we are trying to align across multiple backgrounds and experiences, our orthodoxy and our orthopraxy, who we, or excuse me, what we believe and what we do. As far as I can tell, I've been teaching the Bible now for about 20 years. As far as I can tell, in all my years of teaching on the Holy Spirit and myself trying to shepherd myself into pursuing an openness to his guidance and to his power, what I see is that there's four broad categories of people here this morning that come about when I talk about the Holy Spirit. Four broad categories of people. Each of you, myself included, we all come this morning with a vast range of backgrounds, specific church theologies and teachings, a lot of histories, a lot of experiences. And the truth is, each of us, according to our respective traditions and our experiences, we think that we are right about everything that we believe and how we behave. We think we're right, and we are right. Many of you are so right on so many things, and some of us are wrong. I'm pointing the finger at myself for the podcast listeners. Some of us are wrong. There is something about growing in Christian maturity that you do wake up one morning, you're like, oh my gosh, I've got blind spots. Whoa, I don't have this all figured out. Holy moly, what do I do with that? We're spending eight weeks, and I'm setting this up right now because you and I, to be aligned, we need some self-awareness and some humility. I want to take a moment and speak to the mature Christians boldly for just a moment. Dear friend, humble your soul. Humble yourself. May the mature Christians, myself included, not be the bottleneck in this room who grieve the Spirit with our certainty that we have him and it figured out. Listen, I want you to see if you fit into one of these four categories. This, will, this is what will unite us, okay? Number one, number one, I just call this group the inexperienced. The inexperienced. This is the person who has had no biblical teaching, no experience with church. This was me 20 years ago. When I became a Christian, I, I, I didn't know what a pastor was. I'd never stepped foot in a church when I discovered that Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John were four guys that had written about Jesus, I lost my mind. I was telling everybody, did you know that there's four people that wrote about Jesus? Did any of you guys know this? This book is amazing. Jesus had delivered me from a very, very demonic, literally demonic life, fueled with a ton of alcohol and an occasional drug use. And when I became a Christian, I was just clueless. All I knew was that the drug-induced psychosis that I had come out of, I'd spent time in a psych ward, I tried to commit suicide, and I was alive. 
All I knew is that I was loved. And for the first time in my entire life, I felt, I felt and experienced love. Incredible things were happening in my mind, my body, my brain, stuff that I thought, oh, all Christians experience this stuff. What I didn't know is that the Holy Spirit had taken a very wrecked soul and just kind of swooped me up and took me in. And so I knew deep within I was forgiven. I knew that this ancient dead book had come alive to me. I knew that I loved all these super weird people that called themselves Christians. Like I was like, I would walk into a church. I got saved in this tiny little church of like, you know, little 80-year-old grandmas and I had yellow spiked hair and earrings out to here, and I looked like a zombie because I drank too much. I'd smell like a brewery. I'd show up to church, and those little grandmas would be there. I'd just be like, I love every one of you so much. Movement. It was an amazing time. Inexperienced, though. Inexperienced. I was a clean slate. And so today, if you're here as a curious seeker, or you're here as a family member brought to watch the baby be baptized, or watch the baby be... Uh, dedicated, or maybe you're just a brand new Christian, and all of this is just still like just a complete trip to you. I, I mean, I remember walking into churches two, two, three, 20 years later, walking to a church like, man, this is the weirdest thing ever. What are we doing? What is this? Listen, just settle in. Let your inexperience be trained, be taught, open your heart even more. Here's the tagline. Bring your Bible, take notes, reflect deeply with your community, ask a million questions, meditate, pray. God is not only going to teach you, he's going to meet with you in incredible ways. Number two, the second category of people, I call these folks the good experienced. The good experienced. When we talk about the Holy Spirit, you're the one that gets up on the edge of your seat right now. You are ready to rock and roll. You've got your flag in your back pocket. You're ready to start waving it. You may even have a hidden tambourine sitting somewhere up. Your, you're going you're gonna to be beating that thing offbeat in the middle of worship. You are ready to rock and roll. For those of you that are Pentecostals, you know that I'm just having fun. You guys know what I'm talking about here. You became a Christian in a Pentecostal and a charismatic community, and you had nothing but good experiences. You've been aching. You've been coming in here in this, like, still church that doesn't move around, and nobody's talking, and nobody's amen, and the preacher, when he's getting after it, what's going on in here? And so you're waiting for words of knowledge and words of prophecy, and you can't wait for people to start busting out in tongues so you can interpret it, and there's miracles not only being prayed for, but miracles are actually happening. Hey, me too. I want all of that too. I want all of that too. Pentecostals in the house. I want all of that too. Bring your Bible. Take notes. Reflect deeply with your community. Ask a million questions. Meditate. Pray. God is not only going to teach you, he's going to meet with you in incredible ways. Number three, third category of folks, I call these the beloved bad experienced. Those that have just had really bad experiences. Teachings around the Holy Spirit, you've been exposed to activity. You've been exposed to activity that others pointed the finger at and said, that is the work of the Holy Spirit. But for you, were like, that is weirding me out. It is making me feel very uncomfortable. Or worse yet, you've seen behind the curtain and you've realized a lot of what's happening in this room is forced and fabricated and that's why it feels so weird to me. Some of you have seen churches actually not only lose the scriptures, but abandon the scriptures in the name of chasing the Holy Spirit. And you're extremely cautious there's a genuine skepticism in you, and it's fueled by a desire to know truth objectively outside of our subjective experience. Me too. Me too. Bring your Bible. Take notes. 
reflect deeply with your community, ask a million questions, meditate, and pray. God is not only going to teach you, he's going to meet with you in incredible ways. Fourth category of people in here, see if you fit into this one. This is what I have just come to call the over-experienced. The over-experienced. So if I was the inexperienced 20 years ago, about eight, nine years ago, I would have called myself the over-experienced. Here's, who, here's the over-experienced. Again, if you're a mature Christian in here, I trust you can just handle this gentle pastoral call and exhortation. I personally had outgrown my youthful pursuits of intensive prayer and expectation. The days of me going up into the South Hills and standing on the hood of my Jeep, screaming at the stars, help me, were over. I was too mature for such antics. I had matured past relying on any sort of experiences as God's marks of presence in my body. All I needed at this point in my life was my Bible and my brain and everyone to learn as I had learned where they were wrong and where I was right. Now, I'm joking there, but I'm kind of serious too. I had my theology figured. I mean, and I had it down to the detail. I was a hardcore five-point Calvinist, and I could give you an answer for every single thing in the Bible and in your life circumstances, and I was dying on the vine, dry like a desert, overwhelmed, depressed. Why? Because I had God under control. I had God under control. Now, this category, this extreme, I'm extreme. I'm obviously extreme in almost every way. So this description may not resonate with you, but I want to ask you a crucial question this morning. Are you overexperienced? Have you matured in your discipleship to a point where God is no longer mysterious in any way? Is he controllable? I came to a place of deep repentance. I finally realized, whoa, I had boxed God into my own comfortable expectations. I had boxed God into my very specific systems. Remember, those systems in many ways are right, but in many ways they're wrong. I'm just offering the invitation to consider some things in our system, even as a mature Christian who's been studying the Bible for 20 years, could be wrong. And once I reached that point, I was finally set free to once again explore the scriptures and read them anew and in fresh ways with this hope that the mysterious and uncontrollable God might surprise me and might do things in me, through me, for me, around me that were supernatural that I couldn't explain. And so I surrendered to that mystery and that truth. His ways are higher than mine, that he wanted me to walk with him in the mystery. And I was free again to be, listen, I was free again to be in a real relationship with him instead of just explaining my version of him to everyone. Now, I am a theological neatnik. I am more theologically conservative and more theologically neatnik than 99% of you in this room. The Bible is going to be open on our laps, but I'm begging you, Bring your Bible open on your lap with an open heart to the expectation that he may confront you with the control you've put him under. Bring your Bible, take notes, reflect deeply with your community, ask a million questions, meditate, pray. God is not only going to teach you over-experienced, he's going to meet with you in incredible ways. There's a spectrum here. These categories are broad as we move on. Almost done here. As we mature, there are going to be times where the spirit is rich and full. We learn from the contemplative traditions that there are times where the sense of the Holy Spirit is experientially like a desert. And those times are just as holy and just as transformative. We are a contemplative, dry deserts, charismatic rivers of living water people. 
The key theme here for the teachings over these next few weeks is experience. I know that's a dangerous word for some of us, but I'm revisiting it again. The Holy Spirit is a person, the personal presence of God with us, in us, and all around us. He is someone that we relate to, talk to, love, and are loved by. Sarah's word this morning was spot on. Will you allow me to love you, and will you love me? He is not just a doctrine that we teach. We are going to teach on the Spirit, but to know him is to experience him. So I can teach you about my beautiful wife, but until you've had a conversation with her and she's looked you in the eye and read you like a book and asked you the question that, she did, that you didn't want her to ask and you find yourself suddenly in a puddle of tears because she asked that question, well, listen, I can tell you that she's sensitive, she's wise, she's insightful, but until you've actually had a relational experience with her, all you've got is somebody telling you about her. Because the Spirit is a relational person we interact with, he can be grieved and he can be resisted. Paul encouraged the Ephesian church, do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God with whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. He commanded the church in Thessalonica, do not quench the Spirit. Listen, this is incredible to me. The very God who superintended the creation of the cosmos, the power that created a trillion suns, can be rejected and resisted by the sophisticated doubt of an overly confident critic and cynic. He can be thwarted by our attempts to self-protect from previous experiences. He is grieved when we fabricate and force experiences that are not guided by Scripture and are not actually Him. And the same Spirit that raised Jesus of Nazareth from the dead from that tomb can be stopped by our unwillingness to repent of our sin. And so this morning, we start our study of the Spirit by becoming curious. And as best we can, we want to take our past experiences and we want to give thanks for all we've learned from them, and we want to look forward to what the Holy Spirit wants to do in us next, bringing our Bibles every week to see what the Spirit says about himself in the Scriptures. Now, as we get ready to wrap up, I realize there are hundreds of questions hundreds of questions, unanswered questions. That's why we've got to spend this much time. And it's only, it's only going to be scratching the surface. I just want to close our time this morning with a little video from the Bible Project. This is, this is the seed that we're going to be digging into over the next week. Tim and John, in this little four-minute explainer video, they lay out from Genesis to Revelation, from the beginning to the end, who the Holy Spirit is. Let's take a look at this real quick. If you've ever heard the phrase, the Holy Spirit, and you wanna know what it means, where do you start? Well, you have to start on page one of the Bible, where the uncreated world is depicted as this dark, chaotic place, but then above the chaos, God's Spirit is there, hovering, ready to bring about life and order and beauty. Okay, but what is God's Spirit? Yeah, so the Spirit is the way the biblical authors talk about God's personal presence. The Hebrew word is ruach. Ruach. Yeah, you gotta clear your throat at the end. So what is it? Well, ruach can refer to a number of different things, but what they all have in common is energy. Energy, how so? So there's an invisible energy that makes the clouds move or the tree branches sway. Right, wind. So in Hebrew, that's ruach. Okay. Now take a big breath. <sighs> so you feel that inside you. Yeah, the air? Well, specifically the energy, right? The vitality in your body that you get from breathing deeply, that too is ruach. And this is the same word used in the Bible to describe God's personal presence. Just like wind and breath are invisible, God's spirit is invisible. 
Wind is powerful, and so God's spirit is powerful. And just as breath keeps us alive, so God's spirit sustains all of life. Yeah, Ruach. Now, as we continue on in the story of the Bible, we see God's Ruach giving special empowerment to people for specific tasks. The first person in the Bible this happens to is Joseph. God's spirit enables him to understand and interpret dreams. And then it happens to this guy named Bezalel, and he's an artist. God's spirit empowers him with wisdom and skills. He's given creative genius to make beautiful things in the tabernacle. And we also see God's Ruach empower a group of people called the prophets. They're able to see what's happening in history from God's point of view. That's exactly right. And here's the problem as the prophets saw it. While God's Ruach had created a really good world, humans have given in to evil. They've unleashed chaos into it through their injustice. A new type of disorder. Yes, and the prophet said the spirit would come, just like in Genesis 1, but now to transform the human heart, to empower people to truly love God and others. How will this new act of God's spirit happen? Well, centuries pass and we are introduced to Jesus. And at the beginning of his mission, there's this beautiful scene where Jesus is being baptized in the waters of the Jordan River. Yeah, the sky opens up and God's spirit comes and rests on him like a bird. This story is saying that God's spirit is empowering Jesus to begin the new creation. And we see this happening when he heals people or forgives their sins. He's creating life where there once was death. Now, Israel's religious leaders oppose Jesus and they eventually have him killed. But even here, God's spirit is at work. The earliest disciples of Jesus, who saw him alive from the dead, said it was God's energizing spirit that raised Jesus. This is the beginning of new creation. Yes, and it's still going. When Jesus appeared to his closest followers, he breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. And soon after that, the spirit powerfully comes on all of his disciples. So that they can become a part of this new creation and share the good news and learn how to live by the energy and influence of God's spirit. And so today, the spirit is still hovering in dark places. Yes, pointing people to Jesus, transforming and empowering them so they can love God and others. And the Christian hope is that the spirit is going to finish the job. The story of the Bible ends with a vision of a new humanity, living in a new world that's permeated with God's love and life-giving spirit. That is where we're going over the next eight weeks. Tim was actually one of my professors, and uh, I spent many semesters just learning from him, having lunches with him. And so over the next eight weeks, we'll be building out a, a very rich biblical theology, Genesis to Revelation, who the Spirit is, what he does, what he wants to do in you. Here's where we land the plane this morning. Does everybody have communion this morning? I realize we had a lot of extra seats to set up this morning. If you don't have communion, I believe somebody's going to be grabbing communion for you. You can raise your hands. Here's what Jesus said. Communion in the back for E. Yeah, raise your hand if you need communion. Somebody will come around and, and hand you communion. I recognize this morning there wasn't a lot of Bible. <clears throat> Next week, Bible. I really want to encourage you, bring your leather Bibles. They smell so good. They feel so weighty in your hand. You can flip through the pages. You're going to feel just so scholarly. Rather than scrolling, you're flipping through the, through the pages. 
We're going to tear a, a burning path from Genesis to Revelation next week. We're going to get into 1 Corinthians 12 through 14. What in the world is the gift of tongues? And how come nobody values the gift of administration? I, as a pastor who does not have the gift of administration, I need you so badly to show up with your Holy Spirit gift and help. <laughs> how much of your week this week will you live without God? And why? Why? How much of your parenting, how much of your spousing, how much of your singling, how much of your classroom life, how much of your teaching, how much of your working this week will you live apart from the presence of God, unaware of his guiding, his direction? When Jesus Christ came and died, he died to pour himself, his spirit out upon this world, to bring renewal, to bring humans to living fully human. And the end of the story is all of us resurrected by the same power that raised Jesus from the dead. None of us are going to be disembodied souls floating around with little naked babies and diapers and wings. That's just weird. The New Testament actually teaches that you and I are going to be resurrected by the power of the Holy Spirit but we are to live in that power today. And Jesus said, it is for anyone who calls and confesses Jesus as Lord. Here's what he said. It's the text we began with. And listen to how good he is, how badly he wants to meet with you today. Which of you fathers, if your son asks for a fish, will give him a snake instead? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? I was praying over my boy this morning and just bawling my eyes out, so wanting to see my two girls and my son just, and I am, I am a broken, I'm a broken husband. I am a very broken father. I'm so desperate though to see them flourish. How much more then, Jesus would say, if you then, though you are evil, you know how to give good gifts to your children. And Luke makes this very specific. How much more will your father in heaven give the Holy Spirit to ask, to those who ask him? That's it. That's it. Nothing strange needs to happen. There is nothing strange about Jesus, the Father, and the Holy Spirit. Nothing. In fact, it's as normal as He is, God is as normal. What's strange is living without Him. What's strange is doing life without God who created us. That's strange. And so this morning, as we partake of communion, I want to lead us in a communion meditation. And then we're just going to have a brief time of prayer. Would you all stand? We're going to sing.